Hello, and welcome to Educational Triage, where we discuss issues in alternative education. This is a discussion about teaching by teachers, for teachers, and others who are interested in the alternative education world. We hope you find today's episode relevant, engaging, and useful. And if you do, please subscribe. I'm Tony Hunt, and I'm here to help guide you with the help of my friends, Christy and Philip. Hello, welcome back. This is Tony. And tonight we have a very special guest. And our shows lately, we have been discussing parental involvement and the role of parents in the schools, what parents want, etc. And I was in a meeting recently and somebody jumped out at me. Not It was more figurative than literal. And I just had to swoop in and talk to them and find out more. And so they agreed to come on and visit with us tonight. And his name is Marcus Legrand. And let me give you a little bit of background before we open the door and walk in and, and meet him. I think he's a fascinating man. Truly. And we have so much to learn from him. He has so much sage advice, so much experience. Marcus is the Afrocentric Program and College Prep Coordinator at Central Oregon Community College. His dedication to assisting students to develop culturally incentive programming while connecting them with the community and industry resources is his passion. Additionally, his focus on building an equitable and inclusive community led him to co-found the Fathers Group. So we're talking about parental involvement. Think about this, joining the school, education, and the business community, and the students, and rolling them all up into one. Fantastic. And the Fathers Group is a nonprofit organization, which, and I think that it's a fantastic model. And it's structured to assist students with academic success. It develops support for their underserved youth and small business development. And beyond his everyday role, he volunteers for various community organizations, including Restorative Justice and Equity, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Inc., the Oregon Alliance of Black School Educators, the American School Counselor Association, and He's a consultant with Allyship and Action. In 2018 and 2020, he received the Diversity Achievement Award from Central Oregon Community College for his longstanding commitment to community service. And boy, does he have a lot of it. He's exhausting. He really is. But he's inexhaustible because all of this public service led him to run for public office where he now serves as a director and vice chair for the Ben Lapine School Board. And there he works to establish developmental pathways for students in the region. Oh, and he's still doing all the other stuff too. The stuff that I said earlier. Like I said, inexhaustible. He holds a Bachelor of Arts from Marketing from the University of Washington, Seattle, and a Master of Arts in Counseling from Rowan University. And so please join me. We're going to open the door and we're going to walk in and we are going to welcome Marcus Legrand. 
And here we are. And today we are honored to have Marcus Legrand with us. And as you heard from the bio before we got started here, he is a man who knows what he wants. So, Marcus, um, what? how did you get started? What's your background? Um, where are you coming from? Whoa, that's that's a loaded question. <laughs> oh, my God, that's a lot to encapsulate in, in a quick two or three minutes, I guess. Um, oh, you can take five if you need. Okay, no worries. Uh, where am I coming from? My background. I think, I think my background is mostly social activism. Um, I got it as a child, honestly. You know, I had a grandmother who was a hard charger, uh, take no names, um, but at the same time, very tactful in her strategies of trying to make sure her family could survive. Um, you know, her parents were sharecroppers and they were born enslaved. So then through a lot of different situations, you know, you can say all the different things, enemy domain, whatever you want to say, the land was gone. So you go from that to the slums and then now you're living in the slums of a middle-class town because where I'm from is called Baden, B-A-D-I-N. Uh, myself and uh, Lou Donaldson and uh, Star Jones are from my town. So so it's just a great little enclave right near a lake, right behind an aluminum plant, which was just the main, you know, business there. So you got a lot of working class, middle class black people, you know, you got teachers, own stores, all those things. And then with desegregation, they shut those things down. And unfortunately, and my mom was in one of the first classes that was desegregated and she had me at 17. So I grew up in that system um, of knowing, hey, this is your place. You know what you need to do. But my grandmother thought differently. She was like, yes, you may think we're going to do that, but here's what I am going to do. I'm going to be the democratic leader in this community, uh, getting people to vote, getting them to understand what the rules and regs are, uh, obtaining different infrastructure pieces that we needed in the community. So uh, she was kind of the town police community person as well as like the policing. But here's the cool thing about my grandmother. She also ran numbers and she sold moonshine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so grandma was a little clever, but, but she was, you know, great in what she wanted. She had seven kids. Her responsibility was to get them to get out of high school and get into college, which all of them did. Um, and I was a, one of the first grandkids of hers who still lived in her house because my mom was a single mom. And I learned from her how she made sure that we were educated. You know, we had to go to school every day. We did not miss days out of school. Um, we had to go to the library once a week, get a new book to read. There was different clubs like Optimus Club or 4-H or Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. You had to do it regardless if you're the only black kid in it. So, so my tenacity to understand and want to be around and build relationships comes from my grandmother. So that's where I'm coming from. That's my background. Um, knowing that you have a service to the people and understanding that you have to really, really do a good job of being grounded and being present to be able to provide those services. Wow. So that led into when you went to university, what was it that you wanted to study? Because or did you even know when you went to University of Washington? Well, here's the thing. I, I was going to go to college right out of high school. But there was a lot of different circumstances of why, you know, mostly because, you know, I got a single mom who barely could afford to live on her own, let alone try to send me to school. You know, I did the usuals. Uh, I got his counselors weren't the best. They always tried to steer most of the black students toward historical black colleges. 
I was the kid that wanted to go to Duke, Carolina, North Carolina State, uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, because that's what I really wanted to do. I really wanted to be a director. I just wanted to write and direct. That was it. That was my thing. I wanted to be the next Sidney Poitier or um, next Earl, John, or James Earl Jones. Let me see. Oh, God. There's so many different actors and actresses. Uh, Cicely Tyson, you look at Ruby D. you look at Paul Robeson, all those people I admired because I understand what they had to go through to be able to still perform. So anyway, um, I, since I didn't have the resources, I made my mom a deal. I joined the Navy and I said, this would be a good way for me to get some money so I can get the GI Bill. Uh, but while I was in the military, I was taking classes. I was always going to a community college or just engaged in the community in some facet. And then from there, I decided while I was in the military, I was in, I was actually in logistics. That's what I did, you know, help make sure that different things got where they needed to go throughout the world. Or if we needed stuff, I could get it into the to the ship or to the uh, shore billet that I had. Um, but then while I was in the military, um, a real good friend of mine, uh, he still actually lives in Oregon. Uh, he. He asked me, he goes, what are you going to do? I said, well, get out and I'm going to go back home and go to North Carolina or, and go back and go to business school, right? Or go be a journalist. And he said, no, nah, stay here. Uh, my dad was, is the coach of the track team. You should come try out. So I followed him, got accepted to the University of Washington, uh, got accepted to their business school. Next thing you know, I'm president of a couple organizations. I'm in a fraternity. Um, I'm writing for the school newspaper. I'm the marketing director's assistance for cores. And then I'm, um, I just seen me, I decided, decided to be, uh, be an IBM intern. So I became an IBM intern in college. So that kind of led me into understanding why I wanted to be in business, I guess. So then you took that business degree and what did you do with it? I, I, I took it as an opportunity to see what is out there. Cause I figured with marketing and sales, you always can work in any industry, right? Cause they need those people. And I realized that if I had the understanding of business, but then at the same time, cause I have a really, really creative mind when it comes to marketing and creating different things. So I thought, okay. And then my acting background too, I can put all those things together. And that's what mostly marketing and sales is. It's just basically selling a product or an idea or a concept and allows you to be able to get your information or get your um, product or whatever you're wanting to produce out there. And I just always was good at it in, in a way where it's calming. I could always build relationships with people really simple and easy. But the unfortunate part, you know, you don't know the, the bias or the implicit bias of certain things too, within that too, that, that you got those different layers. So I figured if I ever want to write, really write and be director, because I really still wanted to do that, I need to be in California. So uh, IBM offered a, they offered a training program for new employees who just got out of college to go down to California and be able to be a part of their networks of uh, business uh, leaders, I guess. So I did that. I actually didn't work out. Then I started working for Pepsi for a little bit for a couple of years to kind of, you know, get my uh, self structured again. And then after that, I got picked up by Honda, American Honda Motors. And it was really one of the better 
corporate jobs I've had because they really looked into wellness and understanding of why you needed to be a real good, well-rounded person uh, and employee. So it was really one of the better companies to work for them almost 10 years. Um, when I left, I was a senior district manager for them and it was a lot of fun. Um, got to travel throughout the country, you know, got to live in some really cool places in the country as well with that opportunity. Um, that's how I met my wife as well. So it was just one of those things. I thought business, you know, you just have those different aspects of business that would allow you me to be able to work and do anything in this world. You know, I can work in any country, you know, I can work at any university or, or college. And I just thought it gives me that this is, you know, the way to walk in most doors. So what made you go for your master's and then end up in education? <laughs> well, the reason I got into education, I'll tell you why I got my master's. It'll let you know really quick why I got my master's. Because when I was in business, I was always volunteering. I was always volunteering in, in one of the inner cities that I worked in or on a college campus. I always have, anytime I've lived in a town, I've always taken classes. I, that's just one thing I do. I love to do that. So... I was at a university and I was mentoring students and I was like, wow, these students really don't have an idea what they want to do. And I was noticing they were paying me to like mentor and tutor and just guide them and provide resources for them. And I was like, well, okay. So, you know, my business mind started thinking like, there's no, is there a need for this? You know? So I was noticing when I was going to the high schools and talking and doing speeches and volunteering, a lot of the, counselors were telling me that many of these students are gifted. Like for instance, I went to a place called in Philly called Chad and what they were, they were at architecture high school. So everything is geared toward architecture. So your history, your math classes, your science classes, all geared toward that. In there, most of those students are students of color and many architecture firms want them right out of high school because they're that talented already. Many of them were artists or journalists or just creative types. And they wanted to find ways to be able to get them to thrive in school. Uh, they had no sports there. It was just all academics. And it was all inner city kids. Some kids would come from an hour and a half away in New York on a train to be able to get there. Well, anyway, um, I realized with these students have still, again, no one to help guide them in a way that's going to prepare them to go to the corporate world and hit some of the, you know, pitfalls that happen within in, in, those, in that realm. So... I said, okay, how can I do this? So I, I left, actually left my job. My wife was in residency her last year. Um, and I went and I met with a, a counselor myself and sat down and said, okay, a career counselor, by the way. And we talked and we spread out my, all my, all my tangible skills and figured it out. And I said, I said, there's a growing market for like counselors for students, but more toward like helping them build success. So that's why I want to get back, got my master's in counseling psychotherapy because it allows you to do groups, it allows you to do one-on-one -on -one therapies, it allows you to be able to take a national exam as well if you want to be a counselor for a corporate office or for hospitals or for schools. I can do it in any of those realms. So I thought it was a great transition to be able to continue, but I mostly wanted to help students because even here, like working at a community college, you notice when kids, students get come to you, there's lacking in a lot of leadership and structural organizational skills. 
And I'm like, how are you going to make it in the world if you barely can know to bring a pencil to class, but let alone go write a resume and be ready to present and talk to someone who may want to hire you because you have a unique skill of being able to weld and design other things, but how are you going to market and sell that? So that's why I decided to get my master's. And then you ended up in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, uh, via Philly, via Michigan, back to Michigan. And so like, well, I was when I was in California out of college, um, after I started for Honda, I did move to Michigan or actually Ohio. Now that's where major, most of the plants for um, Honda Red are in Ohio and Indiana and maybe a few overseas, actually in Mexico and in Canada. So I think Japan as well. And then there's another couple places. But anyway, um, I went there, went to Michigan, swam with my wife. I wanted to, I got promoted for the Acura in the Acura division to the New York region. So she came with me she did a residency there and in Philly. And I just kind of bounced back between those. So that's how I pretty much started getting, starting to come this way. After leaving Philly, she wanted to go back to Michigan. So we found the rural area to live in and it paid back a lot of our student loans and allowed me to be able to do similar, similar. But then here's how we got the bend. It was weird. Uh, she says, I want to retire, not in Michigan. So we started hunting places. Uh, we normally would come to Pacific Northwest just to kind of hang out, you know, like football games, just taste wine, do whatever. So we liked it here. Uh, I have friends still in Seattle and I got a lot of friends in Portland and, and Arizona and California. So the West Coast has pretty much been my home most of my life. So I was like, why go home now? Uh, so we decided to come here because St. Charles recruited her to come here. And she now has her own private practice um, as, uh, and great, great doctor. And I, I love that it allows us to be able to, for me to be able to freely do a lot more philanthropic and uh, creative things for students. And you have been incredibly busy as well, haven't you? Uh, I mean, I, are you you're uh, on the board of directors for the school district, correct? Yes. And you ran for that. And then uh, you created, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the creators or the creator for the active allyship? Um, no, I'm not one of the creators of active allyship. I'm actually creative of the Fathers Group, uh, one of the co-founders. I'm not the actual founders like many of us who all started it. Uh, I would say like we, uh, Ally and Allyship in Action is a, is, a, is a firm here who works with businesses to handle DEI. Ally, Allyship in Action is a consultant firm here in Central Oregon that allows to work with like different businesses and organizations who need to start looking at their DEI footprint and how you can structure it better. But at the same time too, looking at some of your policies, uh, your norms, and uh, it's the different way you go about building a culture. And we just try to help you enhance that. So that's, I do that on the side a little bit. And I help, like I said, I was going to help start the Fathers Group. Yes, I am on the Benlafine School Board. Yes, I'm the first African-American to be able to do that here in Central Oregon. Um, and it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I would think that's a that's a lot of onus on your shoulders, right? Yeah. Because there probably isn't a large population of BIPOC people there, are there? They are. I think that that's the misnomer in a lot of things is that we're here, but they're spread out in so many different places. The 
the majority is going to be in Madras. And then I say Ben, and then you go Redmond and then Jefferson County or mm-hmm. Prineville area, uh, sisters, and then maybe Lapine. Um, many of us are professionals here who came here. Uh, a lot of them are students. Um, there's a lot of adopted students and a lot of mixed race families here as well. So you, in terms of classifications and looking at those things, which I wish we could get rid of, I wish we could take all those things off the forms. That's one of my biggest things. If we could take race, gender, and all those things off forms and just people put their names or just put their information of who they, what they are. I hate all that because then it allows people to get identified and then we start late anyway. So I just don't like the labels. Um, so the large, the population here is bigger than people think, especially when we start having things and start, things start coming together. Um, people realize, okay, there's a larger population here than you think. Um, it's primarily Hispanic. I think that's 13% is Hispanic here in Central Oregon. Uh, it's about two point, almost 3%, 4% African-American mix, and then mixed race, Asian, Polynesian, you got different not letters, like 2%, 2%, whatever. Uh, but those things are growing because, you know, people moving from different locations throughout Oregon, Washington, California, even some maybe Idaho that comes this way. But there's a lot of people moving here. So let's go to the father's group. What activated you to launch that, to form it and to have it go? We were meeting as dads. Well, there was a couple of dads meeting before I, I joined them. I think they had met a couple of times. And then when, when they were meeting, one of the fathers was dealing with a lot of different situations with his, with their kids in school. And we just so their support, listen, figure out how we can work on it together. Okay, what do we do? We gotta go to different to go to the schools and be able to talk to them. What do we need to do? So as we were meeting and we realized that we have a really good group of professional black men in this room, right? We were meeting and business owners and professors and directors of businesses and so on and so on. And we're like, okay. Then Brianna Taylor was murdered. Then George Floyd was murdered. And the list goes on and on, as we know. And we like to say, like we always like to say, say their names. Um, but it takes those things to unfortunately make people feel a little guilty, which it hurts because it should just be something we naturally should just do. And we were realizing if we don't do something as men and come together as a people, our students who look like us will never have a fighting chance to be able to have any success in this world. So we figured let's come together and do this. So it's okay. What does that look like? So we looked at the 501c3. We looked at how can we get programming started? What is the one thing they don't have? Like we used to have, we, that's how we did it. We did it kind of like a think tank, you know, we did like a brainstorm, a, a dump of, okay, school. We know what they're dealing with school, but can we have a place they feel supported when they get out of school, but still get help academically? What's the other thing? We have a prison and pipeline population issue. Okay, how can we start changing how we discipline and stop policing our kids within the schools, but at the same time in the community as well? Let's build a relationship with them. So we start working with parole, like I talked about. We're starting to work with police to help them be able to solidify some of their changes. And then we said, okay, business is the other piece. Because if people aren't financially literate and understand how structurally what you need to support the different organizations. So think about it. If I can help 10 businesses get started and say each of them bring in, and this is hypothetical, $5 million each a year. If a portion of their money is coming back to help support the father's group, it's phenomenal. 
because guess what? It allows us to continue to have internships, places for these students to be able to thrive and go, but at the same time to a place they know they always can come back. That's why I took a job at Central Oregon Community College as the Afrocentric Program Coordinator. What that allows me to do is build programs within the high schools and the community college, and you can link all those things together. You can start developing those students to be able to go be a part of those businesses, and those businesses can is an incubator for them to be able to be creative. Then, instead of essential Oregon or Oregon schools to take all that talent to, let them go somewhere else, getting a little bit more knowledge about how things work, come back, and let's implement some of those things. Yes, we still want them to go to Oregon places too, because a lot of people need to figure out how to relate, how to talk and communicate, and want to be a, a part of building what's new. So, yeah, that's that's why we did what we did because we know these students are going to need this type of entity for them to have some type of success in the in the future. How open was the community to joining in, supporting, and working with the fathers group? I mean, did you start gaining traction with more fathers? with more businesses wanting to provide support? So what was helpful is we became part of an organ, we became part of a network called the Black Student Success Network. Okay. It is through OCF uh, and it's 24 organizations throughout the state of Oregon. Uh, what we do is we support one another with resources. We have like monthly meetings, to be able to talk about what everyone's doing and how we can help support one another in those endeavors. Uh, when we have different celebrations or different needs, we always try to get together uh, and try to talk about those things. And then also it's just their support. Like if we need grant writing help, if we need someone to guide us and understand how to build policy or build border plate things for our handbook, whatever, you know, people are there to help with those services. And also a lot of them, are, a lot of people who run these organizations are educators. So a lot of us also are a part of the Oregon, uh, the Oregon, Association of Black um, Educators, right? So mm -hmm. that allows us to be able to be, it's called ORAPSI. So we have a lot of different links. Then what we did after getting that support, we need to get fun, foundational supports or funding. So we started looking at what grants are available for what programs. The first program we did was we, we did some, a film series and started getting some traction. We did it when we were in the middle of COVID and we did it outside. Uh, we started doing backpack drives. So we got backpack drives for students to be able to go back to school for free. Then we had a barbecue with all the students of color so people could meet. This was all pre-pandemic and then pandemic hit. So we like, what can we do for now? All right, we can do an after-school program. Do we want to do it virtually? We want to do it in person. So we had to keep putting it off. But we were still having meetings, still getting structure, still getting staff, starting to get the things we need. And then as we're starting to come out of this, we knew we needed to be, you know, steadfast on what we we're doing. So we started our, this has been the first year of our after school program. Okay. And I know I'm gonna get to your question about what people receptive to us. I'm gonna get to that in a second, but we figured out we something to support them. Now, here's been the hardest part. In the beginning, a lot of fathers all came and showed up and it was great, but they were like, oh, you guys still need to get your structure together. Okay, cool, great. It's like anything, right? Let's build, let's figure it out. And you know, but I don't think people understand the scope of what we were really trying to do. They weren't there yet. They hadn't seen the whole vision. Now that we have the website, you see the programs coming. We have an executive director. They see that we're doing a film series to support students. We're doing another Juneteenth celebration. We're providing free summer classes for the students and people are starting to show up more. 
I don't understand. This is the hardest thing for me. We are a bunch of fathers. Yes, we're African-American led. But what is keeping fathers, regardless of your background, heritage, whatever, from wanting to be a part of it? We, as fathers, for the most part, get the same rap, I think, all the time. Yes, fathers are good. You get some great fathers out there. And many of us also get the short end of the stick saying we're, you know, neglective. We don't jump into the education. We don't help. We don't do all these things in the households. But we do provide a lot of things. And also, a lot of fathers have never had the opportunity to go to therapy, right? Find a place to be able to talk and communicate. Um, told it was okay to cry a little bit every now and then if you go through some stuff. Have a group of people that you can hang out with and talk to. Unfortunately, many of the people that uh, men are associated with is because of their wives, if they're married or their significant other, right? Um, or their partner, what I'm sorry, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. So. I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's just one of those things where do we do we ever have the opportunity to have someone to just say, talk to and be a part of and help build a community, right? Collectively. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing we're trying to get is how can we, I, I'm not saying we're going to lessen what we do because we have other fathers from other things. We want to go, what is it? What What is your reluctancy to want to be a part of your own kids as well as, you know, any other kids' lives to be able to help them be able to be successful. What is keeping you from helping these students of color? Well, I always hear a few men, gentlemen go, well, we're white and we don't want to get in the way. I go, no, you're not getting in the way. I think that's an excuse. What I'm hearing is there's a fear that you're thinking if you can be a part of what we're doing, that you have given up or and like we like to sometimes, and I hate this term, is you're Uncle Tom of your community. And that's not what we're looking at. You got to be, if you really are about trying to make change in the community, it's okay to interact with other people. Yes, you can do it on your terms, but don't do it in a way where it's going to be detrimental, right? Don't say I'm not coming to be a part of that because this is led by a bunch of black guys. Well, if you don't know how to talk to people, this is a great opportunity. We're pretty easy going. Most people of color, we're easy to talk to. We're, we're not, not as mean and evil as you think we are. We're not looking for revenge. Now, I'm not going to say I got a few people that might. But <laughs> we're not looking to enslave you. We're not looking to change the way you see the world. Maybe a little bit. But you know what I'm saying? But we're not trying to convince you to do something you don't want to do. If you don't want to be a part of it, you ain't got to do it. But if you want to see change in the world, it's okay to talk and intermingle. Think about it when you were a kindergartner. If all the kids say, say you had a, it was split. Say if you, everybody was split into whatever, a quarter of everybody, and no one said a word. But what happened in middle school? What happened in high school? What happened in college? Why did we, why did we separate and go our own ways? What happened? Who started isolating us? Who started making us not want to engage with one another? What, what happened? Was it the adults? Was it, was it your parents? What, was it peer pressure? What, what made us stop talking? It's a good question. Think, think about it. When, we, when I was in elementary school, all my kids were all colors of rainbow. Since I got to middle school, it got clickish. Who, 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 who decided this was right and this was wrong or those, those kids do this, or you, you, you start being judgmental. And then you get to high school, you're so entrenched in that, it's hard to break you now of what you know, know and don't know. 
That's why I keep saying all students from K through five should be nothing but traveling, traveling, and traveling, seeing as much as they can in this world. So that'd be the one thing I encourage many of them to do is like, what do we got to do to make this happen and make people not feel alienated by who they are? I think that goes into, and correct me if I'm disagreeing with you, but I, where do we have a sense of belonging for all people, all students, all teachers, all parents within the educational system where they can all come together, learn from each other. I like the fact that you talk about the fear and yeah, women tend to be the, the, I guess the hallmark or the, or the group that tends to be most active with their children's education. But I think the dynamics are changing too. And then with COVID, uh, I'll have to say that one of the, one, one aspect that I, or one dynamic that I thought you were going to bring up was that COVID actually brought more fathers into the fold because many of them were working from home and then they had to be, uh, more visible with their children's education because they were right there and they were present. But but the yeah. thing is, though, were they really present? Here's my thing. Okay. And I'm going to be honest. A lot of dads do not know your kids because most of the time we're either doing a discipline or we're basically, this is the, historically, they've been, we were doing all the discipline and we only come home and then we, that's the only time we interact. Like you said, during COVID, yes, you were home. But people got so preoccupied with trying to get the work, get their things done, and then they were trying to help the students get it adjusted. And then parents were realizing, oh, my God, I got to help my student with their, with their homework and their technology is not working. And I still got to do my job. And then I got to ask my manager, can I get some time to get this situation? And I got to flex. And it made people realize, wait a minute, oh, I'm doing too much. Right. Slow this down. Let's take it to the basics. What does our student kid need every day? He needs a Chromebook. OK, he has his Chromebook. We have their schedule. Okay, let's put a schedule somewhere. Let's get reorganized. Let's do. Let's refigure this out. Let's reconfigure what this looks like. And then, and I'm be honest about this. A lot of people realize that either their kids were doing exceptionally well in school, and some are lacking some type of basic skills that they should have been honing on, because most people have dropped their kids off at nine, picking them up at three, nine three. You see them maybe three hours of the day, four at the most. You see them at night for a little bit. You see them off in the morning, whatever. Now that you know that you had to engage with your student, you had to actually spend some time with them. And then, then and here's the hard part about adulting, like I talk about. Most, most parents just want to be kids. They just want to be on their phones and not bothered. But they forget they got to raise and talk and communicate and figure out their personalities and know what's going on, right? Then what happened is a lot of people have to realize they didn't like their significant other either. And that's the God honest truth. People start realizing, I like this person, but I now have to spend every day with them. Right? Cabin fever. Yeah. Just cabin fever. I don't know you fever. Like, I really didn't know you. I thought I knew you, but I only know you from these points. So now you're home in the whole house and you've got to function. It's almost like your little house in the prairie. Mom's doing her thing. I'm doing chores, mm -hmm. whatever. And you had to figure that dynamic out. And then all of a sudden, people start saying, we're trying to 
infiltrate our educational system. We're doing this. We're doing all and with all these false narratives about we're trying to teach our kids to hate themselves and all this. Why are you putting even more fear into the situation? Right. People need to be able to freely think, be intrigued, be inquisitive, be able to figure out what they want. Now, there's a lot of things we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right now, I know I can work from home. I know now I don't have to work 40 hours a week and still be productive. I realized that, you know what? I have a bunch of people and coworkers who really don't know what they're doing. I have some coworkers who are really racist. I found out I have some coworkers who basically, um, if I had to hire, if I, especially if I'm a manager and I had to hire, I probably wouldn't hire him again. You know, so you're starting to see a lot of different things change, right? So mm-hmm. you, you people have, re- and then back to the men, now they're realizing life is a little bit more than we thought. You got to be involved and be present in the relationships that you have. And for that to happen, you got to have other relationships too. a place for you to be able to come and join together, talk, communicate and build what the community wants together collectively. There's a lot of people who want to be the gatekeepers. And I don't like using the term power and privilege because we know people have it. You know it already. But we got to understand that we got to show them what that power and their privilege that they so-called have is they got to basically use it for better things instead of just holding and keeping it to themselves because they're realizing that they're on that island by themselves and they have it but the thing is though they don't know how to interact with any other people at all and now people are telling me you got to do that to be successful in this world they're either running or they're lashing out well, I would think that the people who actually resort to tyranny are those who are most insecure with themselves and really aren't sure what they're doing. And so their their way of lashing out is an attempt to keep everybody else at bay so they don't find out just how fragile their hold is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and they feel awkward. Right. Now... There's there have been studies and I and and that I think that this plays in as well to the father's group, probably. But they say that daughters without a father's presence and involvement are, is it two or three times more likely to con- contemplate suicide? Mm-hmm. So I would think that just given some of the statistics that are given to some of these uh, parents that this might actually activate them because they wouldn't want to even know that their daughter or even their own sons would, because I maybe fathers bond more with their sons than they do with their daughters. I don't know. But, I, think it's the, I think it's the opposite. I think actually, especially in the black community, what I've witnessed is the dads bond with their daughters than they do their, their boys until they get older. Like my, okay. my daughter's my oldest and mm-hmm. Me and her have a totally different bond. My son and I have a great bond because it's more of, it's a it's a fun giggle, me pick him up, whatever, whatever. Her and I, conversations have always been the same. Like I was her caregiver the first year and a half of her life. You know, mom's doing residency. I'm home with her. I'm taking her to my grad classes with me. I'm taking her to toddler reading at the library. I'm the one got her at the park swinging. So we have a total different relationship, you know. 
And it's very symbiotic because she knows when I'm feeling bad. I know when she's feeling bad. And she does a really good job of soothing me sometimes because I can have those uh, conversations with her because it was always just her and I. So mm-hmm. she, even in her baby talk, I could tell she was like, okay, dad, I understand. <laughs> and she gets it. So now it's still that same to this day. And also we know how much, how we, those most, especially in the black community and like, except for the most part, what, and looking at what I've seen and observed is that we really protective of our daughters because we know what's out there. We know there's a lot of black women are fondled after, are are put in certain ways, also treated really poorly too, when it comes to um, the physicalness of it. You know, I don't want to get too explicit, but you know what I'm saying? That's that's out there. That is a known thing. And at the same time too, we know we are men too, and we know our friends and we know how those things are. And we know how men are. So we're really protective in that regard. Um, our boys, we, I think we have a tendency to be a little bit more looser, but rein them in when necessary, I guess. Uh, but then be very protective in the sense that we don't want anybody to harm them either, because we know historically what has happened with certain, like with law enforcement, with schools, you know, discipline, so forth and so on. So right. we have a totally different conversation. Um, and, and many of the students in our program are young ladies, which is phenomenal. It's hard to get boys at this age, at the middle school and early adolescent stage to really focus on, hey, hey, we're trying to show you some stuff to get you ready for 10 years from now. Can you be a little bit more grounded in what's going on? They're not ready to focus on that yet. But we don't know what they're going through either. So where do we meet them? So those are the conversations we're having as organization. And that's brain development probably at this stage anyway. I mean, it's just natural because it's kind of like a second generation brain form Mm -hmm. that people go through. And that's why they say, why do these guys do these things? Because they're heavy risk takers. Yes. But that's because their brains have kind of gone back to jello again. And (laughs) the synapses just aren't firing at the right rate. I mean, we've, you, I don't know if you were like that when you were a teenager. I know I was. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I think most teenage boys are. And I know women mature and young, young ladies mature quicker than boys. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've always been the stabilizer in most relationships. And that's what people don't get. And I think that's why, unfortunately, we're as reckless as we were at those ages. Right. But right. Uh, some, some people never outgrow that. So anyway, I... I know I'm thinking of right now. Sorry. Unfortunately, I'm thinking about the Ukraine is what I mean by that comment. So, so right. you know, we don't get out of that, you know, reckless uh, stage. And that's unfortunate for those people that have to go through that right now. So, um, but I tell you, I love the fact that listening to those young ladies who come to class is many of them are very brilliant, very thoughtful, um, very engaging, willing to learn, because they know most of the time that in most of their households, they're going to have to be the one that has a lot of it organized to make things happen. Um, I understand that's why most women are teachers, but that's 80% of the teachers across our country are women. And unfortunately, 80% of the administrators are men, which I don't get, so which I don't, I don't understand because I wish it was the reverse because if women can help understand how to be able to put things, I've seen women who are single moms 
budget better than we can budget our own United States economy. So, <laughs> so I, I, I tell you, a woman with a plan in a classroom or in an administrative office or an opportunity to be able to engage and get it right, it is phenomenal. And I think sometimes as men, we do get in our way. And I don't want to generalize completely, but we do get in the way sometimes and sometimes of some of the better decisions if we just listen, you know, because mm -hmm. they deal with more emotion and understanding what people are going through and know the environments better than most, most men have ever seen. That's true. What do you, what do you want? Let's say five years in the future, what would you like the schools to be able to do as well as fathers, parents, all right, business, the community. Uh, all of them are encapsulated in one big thing. Um, in terms of schools, well, business and parents too, we have to admit we have a problem, especially where I live here in Central Oregon. And the country mm -hmm. needs to do this too. I think once people truly commit and realize that we have some racial bias, unconscious, or conscious, overt or covert, we have a race issue. Acknowledge it. Germany did it, let's do it. Acknowledge that we treat people of color, it's probably some of the war and homeless and disabled and LGBTQ, whatever you wanna say, the worst, right? Admit it, but then go, okay, now that I've admitted, work on understanding why it needs to be better. Okay. And not using them as trophy accessories. Right. We're not your token. Um, instead of like, or like Baldwin would say, I'm not your Negro. Now, right. that being said, that's the first step of all levels. You got to, we got to be able to do that. But most people aren't willing to do that. We know that. Um, next, within the, in the actual systems, in terms of governmental, business, whatever, whatever, in households too, people need to freaking actually talk and listen <laughs> twice. <laughs> Hear them, clarify, got it. Now that you've admitted it, now that you've clarified what needs to happen, let's go. Now, if you're not willing to do the work in those arenas, I'm sorry, post, go. If you want to go be off the grid, if you want to go do whatever, go do that. But we're not going to come bother you. Just let us do our thing and let us all figure out at Symbiotic how we can make it happen, right? I'm serious. It works. It's almost like going to that kindergarten narrative. It's like the house, like you said, the house of Benetton. What is that house of Benetton? What is it, Benetton? Anyway, um, yeah. yeah, the colors of Benetton, excuse me. There so think about it, right? From back in the day, it was a melting pot of people just really getting together. And that's what America used to be when the immigrants came over until people start classifying. Yes, you're white now, so you're okay. We understand that the Italians and the Germans and the Polish went through a lot of stuff too. But yeah, but none of you were put in internment camps. None of you were enslaved in a way, not here anyway, the way we were, like we have been and always have been treated. So what I'm ultimately saying is this, people got to talk, listen and communicate and really admit, hey, here's what we got. From a personal level, I think parents, you really need to understand that your kids need to intermingle with other students and they need to travel and they need to stop thinking stuff as stereotypes and so forth and so on. 
And yes, it is your problem to solve to be able to get racism out of our schools and our systems, right? Implicitly and implicitly, right? And you know what I'm saying? Got it, done. It, it is going to be your responsibility to do it. Sorry, you might as well just tell your kid that. You're not making them feel bad. You just educate them on the truth. Bottom line. Businesses, hey, here's how you change. Instead of being right, figure out what your customers want. The constituents will tell you what you have. Your constituents always talk about it. I always tell people this. If your business is selling 98% Caucasian or Anglo, whatever you want to call it, and the rest of it is Hispanic or African-American or whatever, why aren't you targeting that percentage that is low versus the percentage that's here? Where there's more money there? But have you ever realized that maybe Black people and Hispanic people and Asian people or whatever like to hike too or like to float or kayak or or fly fish yes we do those things yeah like to do the things that humans like to do right exactly so target us we we will we do have money and resources to provide well i don't want my company to be known as a black company but then if you say that then we're just going to go okay let's put out a campaign and say you basically just told us you don't like us so mm -hmm. let's boycott you and you don't think our spending power is big it's three trillion a year so so guess what? We go to most movies because guess what? We use movies as a refuge to get away or stay isolated because we don't want to have to deal with the racial pressures. We go on vacations to places we feel welcome because we don't want to have to deal with the racial pressures. You mm -hmm. get it? But if you understand and make it inclusive, then you realize it didn't really hurt you. It made your bottom line stronger. And it made you a place that people culturally want to come be a part of if you can do that for your business. How hard is that? It's not rocket science. Come on, it's psych 101. Okay, so... What are we doing? I think you just said it all. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's it basically comes down to people are people no matter what. Everybody has different circumstances. Everybody's perception of the world is different. But part of that is colored by their background, where they grew up, who they grew up with. I mean, you had extraordinary, extraordinary people growing up that were that were supporting you and that directed you. And not everybody is that fortunate. They really aren't. And because there are some people who maybe take the victim route and they say that people who people learn how to be victims in the womb and it's inherent and that keeps going. And how do you twist some of that around? But I believe that everything that you've done and everything that I've heard you say today is empowering. It's empowering to the parents, to the fathers especially. I think it says a great deal to the schools on what they need to be doing as well as businesses. And I think that that, can, that puts a huge inflection on how we should be dealing with issues in education and in the community, because originally before compulsory education, it was a community that did it. Every And we had the internships, and you brought that up. My program that I run, we do community internships, and that's what it's based on. And I believe that we need to have a lot more of that, and we need to have people reaching out. We need to be able to give students a lot more responsibility, a lot more exposure and I, I and within that i was thinking about it i watched 
uh, CBS Sunday morning um, this past week. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman, and what he did is um, he, I think, funded four high schools to be able to send all the kids to college, right? So if they came to the high schools, the four high schools, and they're in probably some of the worst uh, neighborhoods, right? And I think he was in New York or somewhere. Okay. And the thing he did that was so unique was what he did. He says, okay, when you, if you are a freshman now in these five high schools, when you graduate, you have a paid to go to college, I will pay for it. And they were like, why are you doing that? Because guess what? Their parents, many of these students' parents are never going to be able to afford them to be able to go to school. So if I can take that burden off those four high schools and they're all predominantly Hispanic and black. Now, I just basically invested in that community. All those kids are going to go to school. Most won't. Some will, some won't, regardless of the community college, whatever they decide to do. Now, if you get five high schools, say each high school of those of those of those five at the time, say on average, that was 1,200 students in each one of those schools. All of them may not go. But at least you know there's a large sample size of school students who will go to school, have it done, and then they'll take those resources that didn't they didn't go in debt and they can build their community back up. People don't realize if you clean up the community, regardless who lives there, people will take care of the community. But then you, after you clean it up, you got to continue to keep supporting them in the clean up, right? If they don't know how to run the business, if they don't know how to market, if they don't know how to grow the grass to make everything grow and have a community garden, if they don't have liquor stores and just convenience stores, but actually grocery stores or a urgent care center or something in those communities like they used to, like we used to have in my community, I had that in my community, but the government shut a lot of them down. So when desegregation happened, what they did is they shut down all the black communities. Is what happened. Which makes no sense. Which makes no sense. But at the same time, we didn't realize the leverage we should have had is when you had those Little Rock Nine walking in, nine teachers should have walked in with them. Mm-hmm. And guess what that relationship looks like then? Yes, those nine teachers are going to fight for those nine kids, but then also those white kids are going to have to learn from those black teachers, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't run them off, put at least one a black administrator from those high schools that you had with them. So imagine if you would have did that in the 60s or the 50s or the 40s, what we had. Or if you would have gave all our people GI bills, a part mm-hmm. of, or if you didn't redline our communities. Or if you just right. let us be in our own communities and not desegregate. And I know King says he looks at that sometimes and goes, what did I just leave my people into? But at the same time, too, hey, what, what, what would we be if we wouldn't have bombed all the Tulsa's, the Jacksonville's, all those places that was unclaced for black people to be able to thrive? Or if they really would have let the um, Emancipation Proclamation actually work and people be able to have equal governance instead of murdering and killing all them, where would we be? Mm-hmm. educationally and culturally. Why do you think the European cultures and some of the other cultures are so much better and intertwined? Yes, we have a, in a lot of those places, we have a lot of racial issues too, don't get me wrong. But in terms of being able to fortify what they need in terms of their whole systems are run a lot better than we are. So. That's because they they treat everybody as everybody. Yeah. And yeah. in the United States, everybody... Well, you have you have a child of color and they are in your class and teachers, for the most part, from my understanding, from all the research I've done, 
they tend to patronize because they don't think that they're capable of, or they think that they don't understand. They, they make all sorts of assumptions rather than just looking at them and saying, Hey, how are you doing? Here's, yeah, I mean, just teach them like everybody else. I think I think the hard I think the hardest thing for me when I was growing up as a kid was to understand is that how is it I can play with Billy all day, but I can't go to Billy's house. Mm -hmm. I, I used to go, why Billy can't come to my house? Or why does Billy go to a different church and we're both Baptists? Right? Mm -hmm. You know, why why is it that Billy and I can't stay on this plane, stay on the planes, play on the same little league team? You know? See what I'm saying? Like yeah, 70s. Like, what, what's going on? Why can't we do it? But we see each other in school every day, and we're best of buds. But as soon as we leave school, it's a totally situation. So, and that's the same thing with the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. I mean, there there is a sense of classism that goes through this country, and I've seen it also in other countries. I lived in South America, and and the classism down there was even it was even more apparent. Mm -hmm. It was definitely there. Here, they pretend that it doesn't happen, but it really does. They say, we accept everybody. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, I've seen it backwards, forwards. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, black, yellow, if you're native, whatever people make assumptions about you and then they are going to take you from that point rather than just looking at you as a whole person and to be honest i believe it starts at the home but i also think that the schools also tend to reinforce that just yeah. in some of the subtle and microaggressions that they give oh most definitely and i think a lot of times there's a lot of students within those groups they know what they're doing is wrong and mm -hmm. someone want to say, but it's that fear of not fitting in or being ostracized. It, it hurts a lot because I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people probably when people of color were being lynched, didn't want that to happen, but they were not going to stand out and say no, because they probably would have been lynched too. And that's unfortunate that we have to use that, like you said, that type of tyranny to be able to get our point across about what you don't like. So it's, it's unfortunate. It is. Well, I'm going to wrap this up, and I just want to say thank you so very much, and I hope to have you back again very soon. Thank I you. appreciate it very much. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Holy cow. We covered so much. We learned so much. And yes, it may have sounded as though I cut him off at the very end, but he'll be back, and we'll continue our conversation. So... Yes, yes, there are things that were left unsaid and unexplored. And yes, yes, we will take a look at all of those. But what is the pivotal point of all of this? It's our children. It's their experiences. It's our community rising up to take care of them. It's people having the courage to come up and people supporting those people and working hand in hand with them. So, thank you for listening, and until next week.